In this Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder is going to be leading some conversations with Mark DeHaan and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day, in which they'll be looking at one of the Psalms together, Psalm 34, one that Bill calls a song for handling crisis. Times of crisis are really challenging to us because they impact us in almost every part of our lives, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. And so I guess it's important to ask, are you in a time of crisis right now? It may be a crisis in your marriage or with a child or at work or with your health. Are you going through a time of crisis now? If you are, I think Psalm 34 has something to say to you. And if you aren't, Psalm 34 really has something to say for you because you will be in a crisis. And uh, some wisdom from the scriptures might be just what will help you when that time of crisis hits. Yeah, when crisis strikes is what we're calling this study with the Discover the Word group. And it is good to have the group back together again. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And this week, all four regular members of the group are going to be involved in this study of Psalm 34. And as Bill said, this psalm speaks to a kind of a universal experience. We all have had times of crisis in our past. Many are in that state right now. And if you're not, well, at some point, likely in the not too distant future, you will be faced with some kind of crisis that in many ways takes over your life. And I think what we'll discover is that the psalmist, from his experience, will speak a perspective-shifting word into how we can trust God when crisis strikes. And so let's start getting familiar with this psalm, Psalm 34, that has some really interesting components to it, much like there are usually a number of factors that contribute to our times of crisis. Bill? What comes to mind when you hear the word crisis? Oh boy, uh, something very bad that just happened. An accident, yeah. financial crisis, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a sense of apprehension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An immediate emotional response, but I think of an emergency or I think of a tragedy. It's not positive. Yeah, I tend to personalize it too, and it's almost like, am I going to be up to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of a history sort of guy sometimes, and I hear the word crisis, my mind immediately goes to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which Uh. was a big deal when I was a kid. And it's a very specific moment where most of the world that was aware of what was going on was really on a knife's edge Mm -hmm. in those moments. And it seemed like the balance of life and death could go either way and and the danger of global nuclear proliferation. I mean, it's just a terrifying kind of time. Mm -hmm. Crisis is tough, whether it's with an individual or whether it's with a group or whether it's a community or even a whole society. Mart, you'll remember we had a colleague once who we worked with who had a different take on crisis, which is a little less threatening. He liked to say that a crisis is any event or circumstance that makes you fundamentally reorganize your life. Mm. Hmm. Well, that could be something positive. It could. Like getting married, you have to reorganize your life. Or having a child, you have to reorganize your life. Or starting a new job, you have to mm-hmm. reorganize your life. Or even getting a new car or a new phone, you have to figure out how to use the thing. You know? <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to swallow. It's almost like you have to play with a word, though, to get to that point. 
Yeah, for sure. You know? mm-hmm. And I think what you're saying, Mart, and what we're all agreeing with is that there's kind of an intuitive aspect to the word crisis mm-hmm. that automatically speaks of something kind of foreboding. Mm-hmm. And that puts it in a different class than the slightly more positive definition <laughs> that our yeah. friend offered to us. I think it also plays on the fact that oftentimes crisis is unexpected, and that's what mm-hmm. helps define it as a crisis. Mm-hmm. And forces some of the reorganization and often uncomfortable reorganization of aspects of our Mm -hmm. lives. You know, Bill, if you're counseling somebody through an extended period where the anxiety just isn't going down and there's a sense of this ongoing foreboding, you might want to help Mm -hmm. the person Mm -hmm. in a very gentle way see that, you know, there are opportunities here to do things differently than we've ever done before. And I think that that's true probably of every crisis, but you've got to be helped to get to that point, don't you? Yeah. And that's the key. So I think that's very wise. Um, We have one character in the Bible whose life seems to have been filled with crisis, and that's uh, David, the shepherd king of Israel. Mm -hmm. It seemed like he was constantly living brinkmanship. Living what? Brinkmanship. It just means you have to learn how to manage living on the edge all the time. On the brink. Yeah. And David did that. And and in one particular psalm that he wrote, he speaks of a specific moment of crisis where he practiced some rather unusual brinkmanship and where the results were positive. But there's a lot of unusual and even puzzling things Hmm. about this song that I think are worth looking at because... It might help us when we face times of crisis as well. With all that kind of background, let's look at Psalm 34. And just to get started, we've done a lot of conversations. Uh, Daniel, you've led us recently on a series of conversations on how to read the Psalms. So just to start off, what book of the five books of Psalms is Psalm 34 in? Yeah, so book one and book two of Psalms are the two books where we have the biggest collection of David or at least psalms that are attributed to David. And so this one falls in book one. Hmm. And uh, we've seen that most of the psalms, not all, but most of the psalms in books one and two are what kind of psalms? I think they're psalms of lament, where there's a a grieving and a processing going on. Yeah, where it draws attention to what's wrong with the world and asks Mm -hmm. God to do something about it. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about that is Psalm 34 is the exception. It's one of those exceptions because it's not really a lament psalm at all. It's actually kind of a hybrid psalm. The first half of it feels like a worship psalm. The second half of it feels like a wisdom psalm. Hmm. So in the first half, he's celebrating God's provision of rescue. And in the second half... He's offering counsel to people when they go into seasons of crisis. Hmm. So it has a couple of really interesting dynamics to it that I think are going to be helpful to us. Hmm. Now, one of the characteristics of some of the Psalms is we don't have any idea the context in which it's written and the event that generated it. But in Psalm 34, we do. Would somebody read just the uh, what's called the superscription, the little introductory line before you get to verse 1? I've got it here. A Psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech, who sent him away. <laughs> now, <laughs> automatically, that should get our attention, right? Does anybody wonder if 
David thought back on that and decided to reshape it later. He's like, oh, no, no, no. That's when I was acting like I was insane. (laughs) (laughs) That is good, Daniel. (laughs) And there are some questions about when David wrote this, and this will become more important later in the week in our conversations. But one of the questions is, okay, this is the event that generated the psalm, but did he write it right then? Or was it years later after he -hmm. reflected on it? Not necessarily, Daniel, to reshape the event, but just because as he reflected on it, he had a different perspective Mm -hmm. on the event and Mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, that may seem like a kind of a throwaway detail, but it's a really important idea that whenever David wrote this psalm, it was the product of an event that he had, and we'll see that event in more detail in some future conversations. Let's do one more thing on background of Psalms. This Psalm is an acrostic Psalm. So what does an acrostic Psalm mean? So each line starts with a letter, and it's actually a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can go through and you can see each first letter is one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, what's the point of that? What would be the point of that? That's a good question. What would be the point of that? The first thing that comes to mind is it's kind of maybe a memory device. This was given orally, right? Yeah. And so to help the reader slash listener remember the words of the psalm. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's good, Elisa. And um, the other thing too, I remember when we were studying Psalm 119, One of the things the scholars were talking about is by breaking it apart into the alphabet, it kind of says that from A to Z, Hmm. that God is there, Hmm. that he's through the whole Mm -hmm. journey. So I wonder if as the writer who seems to be David is writing this, is trying to communicate that he's been with me the whole time. Yeah, that's good. Now, what's odd about this particular psalm is that it's an acrostic And that follows the normal pattern that Daniel, that you and Elisa have described for us until he gets to the last verse. And the last verse doesn't follow the pattern. And I think one of the things we've talked about in some other Psalms that we've looked at together is that there are times in the Psalms where David makes statements about God that don't feel like they measure up to life and the way we experience it. Mm. Some of them almost seem like too good to be true sort of Mm. statements. And there are a bunch of those in this psalm too. So there's going to be the tension of promises that we wonder to what degree we can really count on those because life doesn't feel that way. At the same time, we're going to hear tremendous worship from David because God's so great. And in other times, he's going to be talking about what God did when we get to the narrative of 1 Samuel, it's going to sound like, well, no, that sounds like something David did. So there's a lot of interesting components to this psalm that I think we'll have some fun unpacking together. Does the context of being out of his mind have anything to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> If only I could use that as an excuse once in a while. I don't know. I suspect that he would maintain that he was only pretending to, okay. to be insane. So, but it, we've talked a lot about Psalm 34, but it's kind of good to get it all in its context. Uh, who'd like to start us off, and we'll just read around the table Psalm 34. I'll start. Psalm 34 of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. 
Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves lengths of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's Psalm 34, a song for when crisis strikes. And we'll see why these words were so important to David as we discuss them together this week. What are some different ways in your life that you can remember when you felt trapped? I can literally remember feeling trapped because I was trapped (laughs) on an airplane, sitting on a tarmac, not going anywhere. Hmm. We weren't waiting to be de-iced, and there wasn't a mechanical problem. And actually, for the longest time, neither the pilot nor any of the flight attendants explained what was happening. I was late, and I needed to get where I was going. And I remember just having an intense sense of discomfort, shall we say panic, you know, taking Mm -hmm. over in me. Mm -hmm. I've felt trapped in both jobs and relationships at the same time because they were related, right? So it was people within a job that I had relationships with. And so it was like feeling trapped in a job, feeling trapped with certain people in that job. And that was not a good time or feeling. Mm. You know, I felt trapped at times in working with deadlines. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just suddenly had no time left and I had no answers. I couldn't put things Mm -hmm. together. Mm. And I've been trapped financially when I just Mm -hmm. don't have Mm. enough money or somebody I love doesn't have enough money and I don't have enough to help them. You know, just it's it's so scary. And you just watch the the interest creeping up, for instance, Mm -hmm. or you watch the deadline passes and then there's going to be a penalty, a late fee, Mm -hmm. the consequences. Yeah, that is scary. You know, what's coming to mind for me now, Bill, is um, being trapped by my personality. And what I mean by that is I'm someone that says yes too much Mm. and then later go, why did you say yes? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now in moments when you have felt trapped and then the issue gets resolved and you're no longer trapped or at least no longer trapped in that way, what were your emotions? Relief. Mm -hmm. 
and sometimes I think, Daniel, relief is maybe the first level response. Mm-hmm. You take a deep breath and you say, oh, that's behind me. Mm-hmm. But depending on the magnitude of the situation, sometimes it can be a lot more than just relief, can't yeah. it? Yes. Sometimes it's actually you slip right into joy. Sometimes I fall yeah. asleep because <laughs> it's been <laughs> so stressful. Mm. And so that relief moves to just mm. being exhausted and mm-hmm. taking a nap or something. Well, yesterday we started talking about David's Psalm 34, and um, the interesting thing we saw in the superscription, and we'll read it again in a minute, but then we'll see the actual history in which it took place. But this psalm was generated when David was rescued from a season in which he felt trapped in a situation that he had no escape from, and his response is to write this psalm, and I think what we will see is a very emotional response to his rescue. So let's just look at verses one through three. And if we could start with the superscription, and then the three of you just kind of work through those first three verses, that'd be great. Okay. A Psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech, who sent him away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, when you hear those words from David, I think, Elisa, the word you used was exuberance. Mm-hmm. That kind of fits these verses, doesn't it? It does. There's a joy beneath him, a, an excitement, a, yeah, a praise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially to say at all times, right? Like, I will bless you yeah. at all times. Those are the yeah. types of things we say when we're on a mountaintop where we're so excited about mm-hmm. what's happened. Can we assume that this was a matter of life and death? Was it like that he had actually thought his life was done? Well, we'll find out because we're going to turn to First Samuel 21. And I'd like for us to, if not read the event, I want us to at least talk through it and paraphrase it because you're exactly right, Mark. There's a sense in which this is almost kind of a near-death experience hmm. in which David's life is very much under threat. And when you see the intensity of David's reaction, it might say something about the intensity of the situation he's responding hmm. to. Hmm. So let's look at 1 Samuel 21. I'll start it off with verse 10, and we'll read through verse 1 of 22. So it starts off, then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? So David took these words to heart, and he greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands, scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him here to me? Do I lack madmen (laughs) that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped. Sorry I laughed there, Bill, but I was like, how many madmen does this guy have around him? (laughs) Okay, did I tell you yesterday that this was an unusual psalm and story? First of all, what do we know about Gath? Gath was a Philistine city, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's something very specific we know about Gath. It's where Goliath was from, right? Exactly. Yes. In the event that triggered the people to say, 
Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands was the event where David had killed Goliath, the superhero from Gath. Well, in fact, right before this, um, actually, First Samuel's talking about David asking for the sword yeah. of Goliath. So yeah. this could have been a moment of great revenge, right? That's what he's afraid of. What's interesting, mm-hmm. and this shows you maybe that David wasn't totally in his right mind at this moment <laughs> when this is happening anyway, because... He has slain the hero of Gath, but when he runs from Saul to escape from Saul, he runs to the hometown of the guy he killed. (laughs) Now, tell me how much sense that makes. It shows that he's that afraid, right? I mean, he's probably not thinking perfectly clear on where to go. He's just so afraid of being killed that he flees. Yeah, how else do you explain it? It doesn't make sense to me. I've never even thought about that before, Bill. But it's Hmm. like he was out of his mind, literally. To do that. Or was he? Because if you're scared and you ask in, in the verses previous, which we didn't read, you ask the priest for a sword, and he says, the only one I have is Goliath's, might David have thought, well, give me Goliath's sword, and I'm going to go to where Goliath was, and I'm going to then have power because I had power then, and I'm going to have it again because yeah. I have a sword too. It's weird, but was there a strategy? Right, or maybe he didn't think he'd be recognized. seems like that's a more likely possibility. Uh, okay. You know, I think there are any number of possible solutions, but <laughs> here's the one thing I know. Whatever David was hoping for, it didn't work out <laughs> because he gets there and he is recognized mm-hmm. and he has no power and his life is threatened. And so he plays the madman. And because he plays the madman, Achish, whom he identifies as Abimelech, and some scholars say that one was his name and the other was his title in the mm. Philistine thing. And some oh, say, okay. well, no, it's just the same thing, but different. Yeah, I don't know. But here's what I do know. When Achish kicks him out, he escapes, and he gets away, and his response is to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. Hmm. (laughs) Now, if nothing else, that tells us how terrified he was when he found himself in this really bad place. And how relieved he is to be released. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, that feels like the kind of crises that we might face, where we feel trapped, and we feel like we have no way out, and we feel Mm -hmm. like there's no place I can go that's safe. Mm -hmm. Where am I going to turn? And in these moments, it seems like David turned to himself Mm. in the history. But in the psalm, he gives God credit for his rescue. Now think about that a little bit. Yeah, I'm thinking back on where our conversation started, right? We were talking about all the different ways that we felt trapped. And one of the things that I think kind of came out of that was some of the times we're trapped, it's because of things that we do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we feel trapped, not because of things that we've done. And so there's almost like, I think what's helpful about this Psalm is regardless of how we got into the mess, whether in David's case, it was partially his own fault for running to Gath or in some of the situations that we experience where we feel trapped because of things that we've done, regardless of whether it's because of what we've done or because of circumstances outside of our control, mm-hmm. that either way, God can meet us in those times of feeling trapped and pull us out. Which, you know, Daniel, that raises a question for me. You say God can. Bill, where do we begin to know how to apply a psalm like this? I think that's a $64,000 question, and we've seen it in other psalms because David often describes God's responses in an ideal fashion, and it's easy for us to read them and say, wait a minute, that doesn't feel realistic. 
or that didn't happen in my situation when mm-hmm. I felt trapped. Mm-hmm. And we struggle with that, don't mm-hmm. we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think if we're honest with ourselves and honest with the scriptures, then I think how we face a situation like this in the scriptures is going to end up being resolved in how we view God. That's right. I think when we hear David speaking in the ideal terms, I think he's talking about God's ability. Mm -hmm. He's not necessarily talking about God's specific purposes in this moment. Yeah. We trust a God who's like this. Mm. I don't have a guarantee he's going to do exactly what I want in this moment, but this is who he is. And so this is who I'm going to praise. And, you know, if we look at some of David's other Psalms, two things come to mind. One is how many times that he's praising God from within a struggle and is saying that God will deliver him in some way, but God hasn't yet, which is one of the things that we've seen in the Psalms. But on the other hand, there's other Psalms where David's crying out to God to deliver him from something and it doesn't happen. And so there are times that even David is a model of exactly what we're talking about, where we can praise God from within a storm. We can praise God from within situations that aren't working out the way that we expect. But ultimately, we are invited to trust Him, regardless of the way things work out, and especially when they don't work out the way that we desire. Yeah, some helpful perspective in that conversation, because it certainly isn't easy to praise God in the midst of a crisis. But uh, even when things aren't going according to our plan, we can trust that God's plan is good. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast and a study of Psalm 34 called When Crisis Strikes. And uh, Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel will be back with an important conversation about selective memory in a moment. How accurately do we remember things from our past? And was David, in this psalm, writing with a degree of selective memory? Well, that conversation after this word. Discover the Word is part of the Our Daily Bread Ministries family of ministries. And if you're looking for even more content from Our Daily Bread, take a moment to check out this month's featured Discovery Series booklet called Talking With My Father. For Jesus, prayer was as necessary as breathing. And if the Son of God felt such a great need for contact with the Father, well, how much more do we? But we often think the purpose of prayer is for us to give information to God, like, Lord, I need this, and Lord, I need that. However, the Bible reveals a much more significant reason behind bringing our requests to God. So learn what the Bible has to say about the purpose of prayer in this brief online booklet-type resource that you'll be able to read in probably 15 minutes or so, free of charge, when you visit discovertheword.org. The Discovery Series has over 150 titles on a variety of spiritual and biblical topics. So visit discovertheword.org to catch the Discovery Series. And now let's listen to that conversation about selective memory as our series, When Crisis Strikes, continues here on Discover the Word. Do you believe that hindsight is 2020? And I don't mean the year 2020, because none of us <laughs> wants to think about that. But I mean, do you, <laughs> do you agree that hindsight is 2020? No, I don't. I think it's, you don't? No, I don't. don't. Why not? There's so much stuff. I look back, I can't figure it out, you know. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase the question. Do you believe that hindsight can be 2020? 
Yeah, I was struggling because I don't even really wear glasses. So I don't know how to, you know, quantify vision. And so I was going to say, maybe it's 2015 or 2010. But I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. better or worse. Anyway, it's not perfect vision, which is what supposedly 2020 is. But I think there's perspective. Yeah, as we look back, that we don't have as we're going through something. Right. Yeah, we can often look back on circumstances, decisions that we made. And we have more information now because we've experienced the consequences or the blessings <laughs> of that decision. Yeah. And as a result, look back and go, oh, okay, that was a good decision. Or, ooh, I wish I had known this <laughs> before yeah. I hey, did that. Amen, Daniel. Yeah. yeah. I think it was the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who said something like, life has to be lived forwards, but it can only be understood backwards. Mm. Yeah. And I do think that, to your point, Mart, I think you're exactly right. Time doesn't always give us clear understanding, but sometimes it really can. It yeah. can help yeah. and give us, uh, to use the word Elisa did, perspective. And that's what I want us to think about today. But before we do, I want us to throw a curveball into this thing because we're dealing with a lot of unusual things in Psalm 34, as we've already seen this week, because it comes out of an unusual story. What was that story? When David pretended like he was crazy in order to keep himself safe in his yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. Out of that event comes this psalm where he praises God for rescuing him. So automatically, <laughs> we've got a little bit of a head scratcher here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. But let me throw another thing in. Sometimes hindsight, time, distance from an event can give us 20-20 vision or clearer understanding, but sometimes we respond to that event maybe with selective memory. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm. Maybe we choose to only remember the good bits, or maybe if it was a difficult situation, we remember how much those hurtful words hurt us, and we have trouble letting go of them. Sure. I was just listening to a podcast the other day where they were describing something called the halo effect, where we tend to look back and judge a process based on whatever the results of the process were. So if it was a good result, we look back and say, oh, it must have been a good process. And if they're bad results, then, oh, it must have been a bad process. But sometimes bad processes give us good results and sometimes mm. good processes yeah. give us bad results. So it's that selective memory or the the way we tend to look at things sometimes with either mm. rose-colored glasses or, like you said, look back and only remember a point of pain and Mm -hmm. not all the good that was also happening at the same time. Mm. That's interesting. Daniel, what I'm thinking about how I've told certain stories over and over again. Mm -hmm. And now when I look back at a given moment growing up or my kids growing up or in my marriage or in my leadership or whatever, I only really see through the story I learned to tell. Mm. And it's the same thing. I remember the stories Mm -hmm. my parents used to tell or my husband's parents used to tell. We replace whatever might have happened with a fresher memory because we've repeated it so many times. Mm -hmm. That's a bit scary, isn't it? It is. I've been there too. Yeah. Well, with that background, Psalm 34, David flees from Saul. He goes to Gath. He's recognized by people there as the guy who killed Goliath, their hero, and who has been their mortal enemy. And suddenly he feels under threat. He pretends to be insane. And Achish, because he apparently, as Daniel pointed out to us, has plenty of madmen around him and he doesn't need one more. (laughs) Uh, He says, get rid of this guy, and David escapes. Out of that experience, I want us to just read verses 4, 5, and 6 of Psalm 34. And I want you to read them in this context. Is David looking at his escape 
as 2020 hindsight or with selective memory. Okay, mm-hmm. so verses four, five, and six. Okay, Psalm 34, verse four. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. Okay, now given the story that we've seen together and even the fact that the superscription says that David wrote this when he escaped from the king because he pretended to be insane in front of him. At what point in 1 Samuel 21 did we see him seek the Lord or cry to him? Mm. Are you saying that he didn't? No, I'm saying that the record in 1 Samuel 21 does not record it. Yeah. If he did, it's not captured in the scriptures. Hmm. So there is a possibility that he did, and it's just not in the story. But in the story we're given, he doesn't do any of these things he's talking about here. Hmm. So my question is, is this 2020 hindsight or is this selective memory? Okay, when he says, in my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened, and he said, okay. (laughs) But maybe he didn't do it out loud. You know, or maybe, this is a really interesting question. My gut is, you know, maybe the Holy Spirit prompted David to do this, or I don't know, Mm -hmm. but God was in this. Now, did David know it in that moment? Mm, Maybe not till later. You know, I guess I wanted just the easy answer here. It just seems to me like we say, well, there's no reason in the world why he had to record everything or why everything had to be recorded in the previous account. Yeah, and what comes to mind for me is David seems to be someone who, in a lot of different circumstances, prays or writes down prayers in kind of unique ways. You know, sometimes out when he was taking care of the sheep when he was younger, he would pray. Mm. Um, So there's kind of somewhat of a rhythm in his life of praying in different circumstances. And maybe this one was as simple as something that we might say, like, oh, Lord, help me with this one. But I almost wonder if maybe that's what he's talking about, too, is in the moment there was this heart prayer or something out of his mind, God, I need your help. I really got myself into this one. Yeah. First of all, I think you are all really giving David a shot at higher ground. (laughs) And I don't think that's a bad thing. It is important to at least consider the fact that there are scholars who aren't so kind to David here, <laughs> and what they view this as is almost a revisionist history, yeah, where he's trying to rewrite the story to make himself look better in the middle of it. Now, I have to believe that there are answers to this that may be as simple as, to your point, Mart, the scriptures don't have to record every detail of the story, that maybe this is where that detail comes in. We didn't get it in 1 Samuel 21, but now as David reflects, he looks back with a different perspective hmm. to get back to where we started. Hmm. And from that perspective, he says, you know what, all that stuff that I was doing, I was doing, but behind it all was a rescuing God hmm. that heard the cry of my heart even whether he voiced it out loud or not. There's some hope in that for all of us, you know, when we're in a pickle. I mean, who would think, I'll just pretend like I'm crazy here. You know, I mean, I don't know where that (laughs) idea came from. But, you know, our best attempts to self-protect can be messed up. And yet, as we follow God, as we're in relationship with Him, as we were giving forth our best in this moment, can we trust God to use even that? And maybe David writes this later in his life and looks back and says, that was a 
crazy idea I came up with, but I know God used it. Yeah. Maybe it's as simple as that. Yeah. It kind of makes me breathe a sigh of relief and go, you know, I don't have to get it right every yeah. time. I just need to be yielded toward God. Yeah, and maybe the fact as he looks back, he says, I was so out of character. What was I thinking? I mean, I wouldn't naturally <laughs> think to do something like that. And yeah. yeah, so maybe the Lord, he would think, uh, maybe God was doing something unusual. Yeah, and maybe David looked back and he really did somewhat revise the way that he remembered it because the point that he's driving us to is not that he sought the Lord, but it's the fact that God answered. What matters is that God showed up and delivered him from all his fears. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a piece of information that David didn't have available to him uh, because in the New Testament we read that when we don't know how to pray, Mm -hmm. when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us with utterances that we could never speak. The Holy Spirit takes the pain and the struggle and the heartache and the fear and the pressure, and he translates all of that into a prayer on our behalf as our intercessor. And there's a part of me that wonders if maybe what David is telling us is, you know, all that was going on. Yeah, I was pretending to be crazy, but all that was going on, and God was working on my behalf, even in the times when I felt like I had to do it myself. We've been talking this week about this really unusual Psalm 34, where David praises God for rescuing him from a difficult situation. And yet in the midst of that, Mart, what was the superscription that we read from Psalm 34? What was that kind of identifying tag? Yeah, a Psalm of David regarding the time that he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech who sent him away. Now, just the oddity of that. I mean, let's face it, this is a one-off in Scripture. I don't think we see something like this anywhere else. At least we don't in my memory. And uh, it's such an odd thing that we've talked about him pretending to be insane, feigning madness. But at the same time, we do need to recognize that even though David says he was pretending to be insane, mental health was an issue then and it's an issue now. And we need to keep that in mind that we don't make too little of a very real problem Mm. that people struggle with. Or make light of it, right? It sounds absurd that he would feign that, but I think many of us are touched by mental illness in our whether in ourselves or in our families and it's very difficult yeah it's not a joke no you're right i think that keeping that kind of in front of us mm. is important because life is full of difficult challenges mm-hmm. and some of them are almost unmanageable and in fact david was in an unmanageable situation a crisis that he was dealing with at that moment And as we began to look at Psalm 34 earlier in the week, we talked about the fact that the first half of the psalm was him kind of worshiping God for rescuing him from that situation. Mm -hmm. The second half of the psalm is more wisdom takeaways that he learned through the experience of God's rescue. And I'd like to just camp on three of these verses. There's a long section, verses 11 through 19. I'd encourage our listeners to get their Bibles and read that again so they can see the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs, because there's some light and dark. There's some happy and not so happy. But I want us to just focus on three landing spots of wisdom that David's trying to communicate. And We'll read three verses and then talk about each one individually. So 
First, let's talk together. Daniel, would you read us verse 11 of Psalm 34? Sure. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, now the fear of the Lord is a statement we hear a lot in the scriptures. It's one we've talked about before, but when David was in a situation where he was terrified, (laughs) the Hebrew word to describe the fear he experienced in this situation we've been talking about is the equivalent of phobia. Hmm. It's terror. It's deep-seated fear. Now he talks about the fear of the Lord. So we've got another point of contrast in this story. For our listeners who maybe haven't heard us talk about it before, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, I think it has that same level of terror, but it is in relationship to understanding the purity of who God is. He's all-powerful, and he's all-powerful even over those things that physically scare us to death. And so can we step back and see who we are in relationship to him? And when we do that, we're stunned. You know, we're awed. We're blown away. We're terrified because we are so utterly less than him. Mm. And when we understand that, you know, we have a really healthy perspective for living life in relationship with him. When he's on our side, we're safe, as safe Mm -hmm. as you can be with God. Yeah, I tend to think of in the best sense, the fear of the Lord drives us to him, just like you're saying, Elisa, rather than away from him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where we fear him, but we're not afraid of him. That's good, Bill. Yeah. I think that's a really good distinction because most of the time we think about fear, it's something we want to get away from. But as the scriptures use that phrase, like I'm thinking about where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm -hmm. It's an invitation to experiencing a more full experience of life. Mm -hmm. It's uh, an invitation to experience the better way that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit offer. It's an invitation to be closer to God. You know, the scriptures are full of these two things that shouldn't go together, (laughs) like Jesus, who is both God and man. And here we have Mm -hmm. another one of those, which is that fear of the Lord actually draws us closer to him. Mm and provide something Mm -hmm. better than we would have without it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it probably has in view, too, the consequence Mm -hmm. of not going with him, the pain, the loss of turning our backs on him. Mm -hmm. So wisdom is not available until we begin to draw near to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even in his awesomeness that rightly should terrify us, He welcomes us into his presence to find in him the wisdom we need to navigate life. And and I think that David learned that a hard, painful way in his visit to Gath, didn't he? Mm -hmm. That it's by coming to God, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, Let's look at another verse, verse 14. Elisa, would you read that for us? Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, the first half of that verse offers us a challenge that we're not capable of apart from his help. Mm -hmm. We're not able to depart from evil without his help, and we're not able to do good without his help. (laughs) So all of that has to be encased with an understanding of absolute reliance on him. What I'd like to focus on is a kind of a surprising element, and that's the second half of the verse. Read that again, Elisa. Seek peace and pursue it. Wow. And, you know, Bill, I'm actually wondering, I like what you just said about we're not able to depart from evil without God's help. But in a lot of ways, we're not able either to seek peace and pursue it because what we naturally seek is our own way, whatever that is, and not someone else's good. So do we need God's help for both of these? 
You know, and let me push back on that too, at least. Yeah. It seems like an overstatement. I can imagine somebody saying, but wait a minute, can I only do good if I have, what, prayed, sought, looked for God's mm -hmm. help, been consciously reliant upon him? I, that doesn't seem to resonate with the fact that so often we see good and we do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are moments, yeah, you're right. We see something that's evil and we just turn away from it. It just seems to me like it's an overstatement to say that the only way we could do any good or avoid any evil is an absolute reliance on the Lord. And yet Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Yeah. So I guess I'm so, pushing back on the, on the <laughs> conscious part of it. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I think once again, it's almost like what we were seeing as David reshaped the event before King mm -hmm. Achish in Gath, where... In the moment, he was trying to figure it out the best he could, but in reflection, he saw that God was in and around mm -hmm. the whole situation. And I think maybe a similar thing's happening here, that whether it's trying to do good or trying to be peacemakers is a fruit of mm -hmm. relationship with him, just like doing good is a fruit of relationship with him. Yeah. Maybe whether we consciously are thinking about that reliance or not. Does that help any? Well, I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the other thing that I'm thinking, too, is, you know, we've talked a lot about parallelism in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And parallelism is when you have one line and then the next line helps define or answers a question like what, how, or when, or expands on the idea from the first line. Yeah. And so what David could be referring to here is when he says, depart from evil and do good, how or what do I mean by that? I'm inviting you to seek peace and pursue peace. Oh, that's good. Daniel. Which kind of would mm -hmm. make sense in this context, right? Like he's feigning mm -hmm. madness so that he doesn't get in a fight in Gath with people that want to kill him. And so almost what how he's defining departing from evil and doing good is through seeking peace and pursuing mm -hmm. it. And thereby seeking God as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in both cases, with the fear of the Lord and with Verse 14 was seeking peace and pursuing it. In both cases, nearness to God is the key element, right? Yeah. yeah. So with that in mind, Mark, read verse 18. Okay, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Now, how about that? Mm. <laughs> when is it that we feel most distant from God? Mm. When our spirits are crushed. Yeah. yeah. When we're wounded, when we're hurting, when we're fearful, when we're in crisis, those are the times when we often want to cry out, where are you, God? Mm -hmm. And yet David says in his experience of crisis, mm -hmm. here's what he learned. In the time when you're crushed, that's when God's closest. Yeah. In the time when you're brokenhearted, that's when he's nearby. Mm -hmm. I'm just overwhelmed by that. Mm -hmm. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? And and I'm going back to what we talked about with the fear of the Lord. You know, and Billy, I think you said to fear him, but don't be afraid of him. You know, so every time we sense that we're afraid of God, in that moment, can we ask ourselves why? And pretty much we're going to come up with a wrong understanding of him because I think yeah. he's going to judge me and squash me like a bug because I think he depends upon me doing it right in order to love me. Mm -hmm. When we can confront those fears, then we can turn them and invite him into them. And then the same thing is that I may not always depart from evil and do good, but I can turn my heart towards seeking 
God, who is the author of peace. And now, verse 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. When I am so crushed in that moment, God bends, we saw it, Jesus on the cross was broken so that he would be completely near us in our brokenness. This is very counterintuitive, but it's beautiful too. Mm -hmm. And it's a clear pathway out of our pain, our crisis. And I think it's worth noting that, Bill, you helped us see how this is wisdom literature wisdom literature is full of principles, not promises. Hmm. So it's not saying that this is the way things work every time. In the same way that, you know, like we were talking about, sometimes we depart from evil and do good. And it's not because we have this deep awareness of God or whatever, it just happens. And there's times where we're, uh, as this verse says, brokenhearted or crushed, and we don't feel like God saves us. You know, again, this idea of it being a principle and not a promise It doesn't mean that every time we are brokenhearted or crushed in spirit that we will experience God's rescue in the way that we expect or the way that we want. But we can be sure that he is near us, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, even David kind of hints at some of what you're saying, Daniel, when he presents God in the ideal terms. Yeah. Even though those ideal terms don't always fit into our real experiences day by day, that's still who he is, whether we experience him that way all the time. And in this way, I think we might not always feel his experience of rescue when we're crushed, but I do believe we can be absolutely confident that the one who has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you, is not only with us when we are brokenhearted. He is particularly near us when we are brokenhearted. In that experience of brokenheartedness, whether we feel like he's there or not doesn't become the issue. Just like whether David understood how God used his feigning madness to get him out of that mess was not the issue. The issue was, regardless of how he did it, God saved me. Hmm. And whether I realize it or feel it or not, God's with me. And in the time of crisis, that's where I need to live. Yeah, that is a key piece of wisdom that this psalm communicates to us. God is with us. And even if we don't personally experience the immediate kind of rescue that David experienced, we can take comfort in knowing that God has not left us on our own. Well, Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel will wrap up this series titled When Crisis Strikes after this word about our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Daniel Ryan Day leads the group in a discussion called Wait For It. Let's be real. Modern culture is not a patient culture. We don't like to wait for things. I was reading Henry Nouwen recently, and he wrote just this phrase, most people consider waiting a waste of time. Maybe that's why we pull out our smartphones when we're at a red light in the car or when we're in line, because we're trying to fill that time where we're just waiting with something productive. Yeah, because I think most of the time we do feel that waiting is a waste of time. However... As I've been reflecting on this, I've realized as I've been thinking about the Bible that in many ways you could say that the story of the Bible is a story of waiting. And so don't miss our next study together as people who are admittedly not very good at waiting consider a bunch of examples of what it means to wait on the Lord. That's next time on Discover the Word. Now the conclusion of this study of Psalm 34 
with a surprising look at how it contributes to the overall big story the Bible is telling. What is a thread worth? What is a thread <laughs> worth? What is a thread? Yeah, like a, a little piece of thread, a little piece of string. I was going to an email, and it's everything oh. <laughs> because it's the context <laughs> okay. for whatever's being written about. You've got to read the thread below. Think like an old person like me, Elisa. <laughs> Think about what a little piece of string slash thread, hmm. what is it worth? Nothing. <laughs> well, it depends. Is it the thread that is the last thread on a climber's rope as he's climbing a mountain and that's what's keeping him safe? Ah. It all depends on what the thread is doing, I think. Or it's the thread that is poking out of a sweater when you you pull it. The entire sweater Mm -hmm. begins to unravel. There you go. (laughs) Are you a thread puller, Elisa? Yeah, they might be, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, Daniel, you're kind of on to something there. A thread may be really important once it's in use Mm -hmm. and once it's part of something bigger than itself. So my grandfather left to Marlene and myself a Persian rug that he had. And any one of the threads in that rug is pretty insignificant. But when they're all put together, Mm -hmm. it's beautiful. And that might sound like an odd way to start our conversation today, but there's a thread in Psalm 34. Hmm that by itself doesn't tell us much. But when you weave that thread into the tapestry of the big story of the Bible, it takes Psalm 34 to a new place for us. Mm -hmm. So for today, for our final conversation, I'd like for us to read verses 20 through 22 of Psalm 34. And the little piece of thread is going to be immediately noticeable to us, even though it would have had very little specific significance to David as he wrote it. So verses 20 to 22 of Psalm 34. Daniel, why don't you start us off? Yeah, you're right. I see it right away. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall stay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. I missed it, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't see it. What is it? Maybe Daniel better read verse 20 again. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So it's one of the verses, right, that became a prophecy of the Messiah who would... Ah, okay. Yeah. Because Jesus on the cross did not have his bones bones broken, his legs, like the thieves next to him did. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a really interesting statement because to the Jew, it would look backwards. Mm-hmm. But as you rightly say, Daniel, prophetically, it would look forwards. Mm-hmm. It looks backward to the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. Uh. Because part of the Passover lamb instructions that were given to Moses and given to the children of Israel that first night of Passover as they were getting ready to leave slavery in Egypt and escape eventually to a land of promise. Part of the instruction was in the preparation of the Passover lamb, no bones were to be broken in that lamb. Hmm. As a Jew living in David's day, hearing that song, listening back, he would say, so God protects just like he wanted us to protect that Passover lamb. I didn't even know that, so I didn't even think of that. So I looked forward, Mm. but you're saying a Jew would Mm -hmm. look back. That's helpful. But do you think at the time anyone 
would have really seen what we're looking back and seeing now? Well, that's a really good question, because I don't know that there's any way we can know, but I do know that because the Jewish culture is so saturated in ritual and in the activity of ritual, and this kind of a statement, he keeps all his bones, not one of them shall be broken, there's an echo there. Okay. Whether there's a direct linkage, there's an echo there. And that's one of the things we find in the Gospels so many times is that Mm -hmm. sometimes there are direct prophecies where it says, this happened because of this prophecy that took place, but sometimes it's just an echo. And you're saying it's an echo of the temple ritual, right? Yeah, and before that even, the tabernacle, and before that even, that night in Egypt okay, uh, when the Passover lamb was prepared. And the reason I think that maybe it would have been an echo that could have resonated with them was Passover was still a very important part of Judaism in David's life. And so this idea of the protected no bones broken, like the lamb, that's how God protects us. Maybe it helps just to pick up verse 19 too. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And then verse 20, he protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Mm -hmm. This is a message of deliverance that echoes the deliverance from slavery in Egypt that's repeated in the the rescue, the deliverance that continues forward into the New Testament. This is just like a thread, like you're saying, we don't normally get it, you know, unless we pick it up and see what it's attached to previously and what it's Mm -hmm. attached to in the future. And the language has changed as well, right? Because at the beginning, he's talking about I, me, my. Of Psalm 34. Yeah, of Psalm 34. Mm -hmm. And now he's into the plurals, right? Of the righteous people, the rescues them. He keeps all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he has turned in the psalm to making declarations of kind of this rhythm of how God works through people Mm. and with people in the world. You know, the other side of this is I can imagine people back then reading this and just being immersed in the the physicality of it and thinking, well, wait a minute, we've had a lot of good men go to war and their bones have been broken, you know, many, many times. Yeah. I think, Bill, at one point you alluded to the fact that there are going to be some things in this psalm that just don't makes sense or seem to make sense. Ideal versus real is the way we've been talking about it. And this is the ideal of the holistic nature of God's rescue. But this finds resonance in the New Testament as well, where in the New Testament, John, in John 19, when they get ready to end the crucifixion event, They break the bones of the two thieves in their legs. And the reason they do that is because the only way you could survive on a cross is you had to push up on the nails in your feet and push up with your legs to relieve the pressure in your chest so you could breathe. And and then when you couldn't stand the pain in your feet any longer, you would just collapse and not breathe for a little bit. And so when they wanted to end it early, they would break the legs so they couldn't they would end up suffocating. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So somebody read that John 19 for us. This is John 19, 32 and 33. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. Then verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his leg. Oh, yeah. And then skipping to 36, it says, these things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. Yeah. Again, there's an echo of messianic hope 
and messianic anticipation. And so, you know, we start off talking about a little thread and how a little thread by itself may not have a lot of value. But when you put it in the larger fabric of a Persian rug or a tapestry or a counted cross stitch, suddenly that little tiny piece of thread has beauty and brilliance and value. Here, we see a little thread of an idea. None of his bones will be broken. And we see it reach back to Passover, reach forward to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus. And we see the entire story arc of the Bible centering right here in this very unusual psalm, which I just find beautiful. So you really have to connect the dots then, don't you, to be able to see something that in this verse all by itself, you just couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. And by no means do I think that necessarily David was thinking of the Passover lamb when he wrote that. He might have been. He might not have been. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't think he was thinking about Jesus when he no. wrote these words. Right. But in the beauty of the way the scriptures mm-hmm. unfold, we continue to get these pointers, these little threads that weave together to give us a picture of God's ultimate rescue. David's been talking a lot about God's rescue of his situation in Gath. But the song of rescue from crisis ends by pointing us forward to ultimate rescue. Mm-hmm. We really have talked about this a lot, haven't we? That Jesus brings fullness of meaning to so mm-hmm. much in Scripture. He mm-hmm. brings fullness mm-hmm. of meaning to goodness. His death brings uh, fullness of meaning to evil when we see the way in which there were these demonic forces and the mob of his own people demanding his death, showing how far they had strayed from him. It's like he brings fullness of meaning to the whole. Mm-hmm. I remember when we had uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones on, and she talked to us and very beautifully read to us from the Jesus <laughs> Storybook Bible. But the thing that I have never been able to get away from from that was the subtitle to the book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, because the subtitle is Every story whispers his name. Psalm 34 is a whisper. The Passover lamb is a whisper. The cross is the fulfillment of those whispers of anticipation that are planted throughout the Old Testament that point us forward to real hope and real rescue and real deliverance. Yeah, even here in Psalm 34, we can find reference to our ultimate source of hope and rescue, Jesus Christ. That's really where all of Scripture is pointing. Every story, every part whispers Jesus' name. Great way to end this series of conversations called When Crisis Strikes. Here on Discover the Word with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Well, these Bible studies on the Discover the Word podcast and all the resources Our Daily Bread Ministries is able to provide are made possible because grateful friends like you give voluntary donations to cover the costs. Your giving helps us make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. 
And if you'd like to partner with us financially, I encourage you to go to discovertheword.org and click the Donate tab to explore some of your options. All right, I'm Brian Hedinga. Thanks for studying with us. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.